stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static. Despite the intro, John Vecchioni is not with us this week, but I have exciting news for our listeners. Not only has Janine Yunus returned to the new Civil Liberties Alliance, but she is joining me as co-host of Administrative Static this week. Janine, welcome back. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So uh, we're going to get to a couple of topics that Janine knows a whole lot about later in the program, but uh, we're going to start with a surpetition that the new Civil Liberties Alliance uh, filed this week. Uh, our colleague, uh, Russ Ryan, uh, filed this uh, cert petition uh, at the Supreme Court on behalf of our client, uh, Reverend Father Emmanuel Lemelson. And Father Lemelson is a Greek Orthodox priest, but he is also an activist investor. And the SEC uh, had been after him for several years, finally was persuaded, uh, it appears, by outside sort of forces outside the SEC to uh, to, to bring uh, some fraud charges against him. But here's the interesting thing. He went in front of a jury. The jury did not find him guilty on any of the charges of fraud or deceit or you know, having any sort of scheme in place. The only thing that they found him guilty of was, uh, and I shouldn't say guilty because that makes it sound like a, a criminal case, and this was not. This was a civil case. They found him civilly liable for uh, allegedly making uh, some uh, statements that either, and it's not clear from the jury verdict, they were either untrue or the jury felt like they were misleading because insufficient context was provided uh, given that some things were said that maybe other things needed to be said to give uh, sufficient context to avoid those things being uh, found misleading. So uh, the question that that raises, and interestingly enough, this was surprising to me, Janine, that the Supreme Court has never weighed in on this question of whether or not, uh, in whether or not the First Amendment protects uh, this kind of speech in the absence of some sort of fraudulent scheme. And so that's the question that we have uh, teed up for the Supreme Court's consideration: absent proof of fraud or deception, does the First Amendment protect a securities market participant? from being punished and enjoined by the government for intentionally or recklessly making untrue statements or omissions of material fact while criticizing a publicly traded corporation. And the, the corporation at issue here was uh, Ligand Pharmaceuticals. I think that's how you pronounce it. And uh, Father Lemelson was very upfront about the fact that he had a short position in this stock. And for those who aren't stock traders or don't follow the markets, what that means is he was betting that the price of the stock was going to go down. And so if he was saying negative things about the company at the same time that he was betting that it would go down, that means he had a financial interest in seeing the stock price go down. So you might think of that as, as a conflict of interest or something like that, but uh, or maybe an alignment of interest, but certainly certainly something the company didn't want to have him out there you know, saying negative things. But you have a right as an American to say negative things about uh, public companies, and that's what he was doing. And he was, as I say, he disclosed the fact that he had a short position uh, in the stock when he was 
doing these reports on the company and and doing uh, online interviews and, and and that sort of thing. So, you know, if uh, if the SEC had been able to prove to the jury, and so I'm not sure there was anything wrong with with bringing these sorts of charges or attempting to make this sort of case against an investor. And what I mean to say is, if the SEC had been able to prove that there was a fraudulent scheme here, suppose they showed that he had deceived a bunch of people and that they'd lost millions of dollars as a result of, of the deception or something like that, well, then that's a different case. But here, you have a case where uh, no investors appear to have lost any money. I mean, F- Father Lemelson said, the stock's going down and it's going down because of these negative things. And if they listened to him and either joined him in a short position or sold stock sooner than they would have otherwise, what have you, they saved money. They didn't They didn't lose money or they made money if they had a short position uh, with him. So there isn't, and, and the district judge said in the case that uh, that the SEC hadn't pointed to any evidence uh, of anybody you know, having been damaged uh, as a result of this speech. Uh, and then the, he was found um, not liable on all of the fraud charges. So the only thing you have left is the speech. And ordinarily, uh, I mean, if I remember the First Amendment correctly, Janine, ordinarily the First Amendment protects uh, against speech that's untrue or misleading. Yeah, it does. Uh, and I'm sure we're going to discuss that later. But there was a case called Alvarez, for instance, that uh, ex- where the Supreme Court explicitly said that uh, uh, even lies are constitutionally protected. And the reason for that doctrine is that in a free society where people are debating, false statements are inevitable. The court said something like that. So, you know, we can't go around policing people because of the chilling effect it will have. We have to, you know, assume that people are sometimes going to say things that are untrue. Uh, and it, it's interesting that they also uh, create, you talked about the statement possibly being misleading or taken out of context, which is now called malinformation <laughs> um, <laughs> under the, the new ways we talk about speech. Um, right. So not even false, but lacking context, which I think is is even more problematic to punish that. Yeah, I think it's I think it's problematic to punish that, and and as you say, it chills speech. I think the Alvarez case was the one where someone claimed to uh, uh, a veteran claimed that he had won certain medals or distinctions in in you know, when he was in active service that he had not, in fact, won, if I remember, or maybe he wasn't even a soldier. I don't remember the exact facts. But, uh, you know, so that was, uh, you know, that wasn't even, as I understand the facts in that case, that wasn't even debatably true. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And so the First Amendment came in uh, into play to protect that speech. And here you have speech, I mean, 56 pages of speech, and they, you know, the, the jury focused in on on uh, you know one sentence that was uh, allegedly either false or misleading, and another uh, sentence fragment that that was either uh, untrue or or you know needed greater context, and then I think it was a two second statement in one of his online interviews that they also uh, pointed to. Well, as Jenny just said, if I mean if try to. <laughs> Try. I'm not sure I get through an entire uh, one-hour podcast without saying something untrue <laughs> at some point, and, and that's not deliberate. Uh, but it's it's difficult if you speak a lot or if you're writing a lot uh, to be careful enough to avoid uh, saying anything. And again, not even false isn't. I mean, it, the jury might have just thought that this was misleading because it lacked context. So to try right. to write 56 pages and not you know, leave your reader with inadequate context in one or two spots. That's, that's hard to do. 
Yeah, and I, you know, I think what would end up happening if you could punish this kind of stuff uh, is that people would just not say things publicly because they'd be too afraid of saying something inadvertently. I'm sure you'd, you'd have to be, be able to prove intent in every case, and um, or we'd be looking at intent, which is very difficult to know. And there's there's so much room for using this for political, re you know, against people for political uh, purposes. So it would be very bad precedent to find that this was okay. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and the reason why it's less of a problem, at least, uh, if you're also proving fraud at the same time is that there are, there are certain things that you have to show, uh, you, you know, if you're if you've got a fraudulent scheme, right, you have to show that there's causation, you have to show that there's damages, you have to show, uh, you know, things that would be difficult to show in the ordinary case beyond the falsity uh, of the speech. And so that cabins that all in. And and so it doesn't have the same chilling effect as just punishing sheer speech. Right. And have. something similar uh, applies to defamation as well. So, you know, the, the Supreme Court precedent recognizes that we do have some categories of speech that can be subject to penalty, um, but it's a high bar to prove certain intent elements and other aspects. So, um, yeah, absolutely. And and so, you know, we've, we've already sort of hinted on this, but what the petition asserts is that the decision conflicts with uh, the First Amendment, the Supreme Court's First Amendment precedent in three distinct ways. First, that uh, false statements of fact are protected by the sort of breathing space that the First Amendment requires. Uh, second, that uh, abridgments of free speech demand clear and convincing proof of falsity and intent. And as you may know, in, in a civil liability case, the jury would have only had to find a preponderance of the evidence. And so that wouldn't be the clear and convincing proof of falsity that you would ordinarily need uh, in the First Amendment context. And then the last point is that, you know, there are there is this fraud exception to the First Amendment. There are all sorts of free speech that aren't protected, right? Harassing speech isn't protected. Uh, fighting words aren't protected. I mean, there's, there's these different doctrines that come into play. And one of those is fraud. There's a crime fraud exception even to attorney-client privilege protected uh, speech. But uh, but here the jury didn't find that he had, you know, they found him not liable for any of the fraud yeah. uh, charges. And so that can't come into play uh, either. I think that, I think that the, so this is a cert petition that Supreme Court has not agreed to hear this case yet. I think it would be important for them to hear this though, because again, the court has never weighed in on this question. And it looks like the SEC is going around fairly, with a fairly free hand punishing this sort of, sort of speech. And I do wonder how much of it uh, uh, is being chilled. And then, you know, Jeannie, you had said something to me just before we went on air that you thought this sounded like a prior restraint as well. Right. Um, because, think... yeah, because the uh, fi the finding barred him from making similar statements for five years, which is um, uh, sounds like a prior restraint to me. So that's when there's a law in place that says he can't say certain things. And that's considered one of the most egregious First Amendment violations. Um, so, and it's, it's a bit, you know, making similar statements for five years also will have a severe chilling impact on him. So what, what does similar statements mean? Um, he's going to be afraid to say anything now. Right. Yeah. So even if it doesn't chill anybody else, it would certainly chill him to have that, uh, to have that, uh, uh, ruling in place. So it was $160,000 fine and a five year bar on, on similar, similar kinds of speech. And, uh, you know, I think that, as I say, I think the court should take this case. It really provides an ideal vehicle to decide the First Amendment question uh, because of the jury findings here. They found 
liable on the speech element, but not on the other element. So it really tees up the case nicely. Hopefully the court will take it and we'll keep you posted uh, about that. Uh, we'll be back with more right after this on Administrative Static. to Administrative Static. I'm Janine Yunus, uh, substituting for John Vecchioni, who is uh, off fishing, I think, somewhere. And I'm here with Mark Chenoweth. Hopefully fishing for cases, but probably not. <laughs> I think for real fish. <laughs> well, those would also be his cases, right? So, That's true. <laughs> and by the way, if he's fishing, why isn't he in the Gulf of Mexico? He should be down fishing for fish down there. He's, he's got lots of new captain friends down in the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> So Mark and I wanted to talk a little bit about a recent Ninth Circuit case. So in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, uh, hearing a challenge to California's medical misinformation law. So this was a law that the state legislature passed about six or eight months ago, uh, and it prohibited doctors from from giving advice or treatment about COVID uh, misinformation in the form of, sorry, misinformation in the form of treatment or advice to patients about COVID specifically. Uh, NCLA actually brought a challenge that was successful at the preliminary injunction level. But in another district in California... So, someone here argued that case, if <laughs> yes. I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that was Janine's case, Hogue v. Newsom. Um, yes, so uh, that was a good victory for those plaintiffs. However, there was an, uh, another case brought in a different district in California, the Central District, and that had the opposite outcome. So the plaintiffs lost and appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, and the government did not appeal your victory in That's right. In right. <laughs> that's right, um, which was a, a clearly strategic decision because they didn't really want to go up on a, a loss. They were better off going up on a win. Um, I, I, I think NCLA considers this case important, an important First Amendment issue, because it really interfered with the doctor-patient relationship and had a severe chilling effect on doctors. It was pretty clear from the legislative history that the law was designed to prevent doctors who dissent from the government and, uh, you know, CDC-type authorities on things like masks and COVID vaccines. Um, so the... Uh, and, even, and even sort of COVID side effects, I think, from... That's right. Yeah. Alternative treatments, ivermectin, hydrochloroquine, which you know, we don't take a position on, but uh, is a problem if doctors can't use their best judgment to um, treat patients. Uh, you know, doctors aren't really supposed to just be towing a government line. Uh, they're supposed to use their own experience, expertise, and training to make the best judgments in their opinion. Well, and I think I've used this example on the show before, but I know you had one of your clients in the, in the Hogue case uh, was... Uh, operating in a in a hospital environment where they were intubating all of the COVID patients who were coming in, and 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 he took a contrary view to that and said, eh, you know, I don't think this necessarily makes a bunch of sense. And so he was not doing it and getting better results for his patients. And over time, 
the whole the whole thing switched and now it's considered best practice not to intubate even though that's what they were doing at the beginning so how do you if you're not allowed to dissent from the prevailing view how do you ever get unstuck from you know bad policy dis- medical um, not policy but bad medical uh, sort of practices that are that are being done exactly that's that's right so that the law is bad policy for that reason and another of our plaintiffs had an example in the non-COVID context, he's a, a trauma surgeon, and he had been taught that you should operate on everybody who presents with an appendis- with appendicitis. And actually, in severe cases, it causes more harm. You should actually treat them with um, antibiotics or, or medication before operating. So, you know, that was how he made progress in that field, and now his practice is the rule. But nobody would have ever learned that if he was afraid to, you know, be prosecuted under medical misinformation laws like this. So it's bad policy. It's also presents a First Amendment problem. Uh, Well, the government tried to claim that this was about conduct, not speech, because it was um, advice or treatment. That's clearly not true because, you know, why would you have advice in there if it was just treatment? They were clearly trying to punish pure speech, which the law doesn't allow. So, um, it was, so how'd the oral argument go? It, it was great. <laughs> uh, highly problematic law. And two of the three judges seemed very to take major issue with the attorney general's case. Uh, they actually asked almost no questions of the plaintiff's lawyers. There were two, um, two separate organizations brought challenges. So the first lawyer got asked no questions at all. <laughs> and did you feel sorry for him? That's yes. kind of hard, isn't it? To be up there and get no questions that you've been preparing for as a, as an appellate lawyer, <laughs> Uh, it's my worst nightmare. I hate being asked no questions at all. You like to have a dialogue, not to give a speech. So, right. uh, and you know that that means one of two things: either that the judges think your case is terrible and they have no interest in it at all, or they think your case is really good and so they have no questions. So, so it's not clear until they get to the next side, to right. the other side, which of those things it is. Did but, you? Were you ever tempted <laughs> to say, "I know I said I'd like two minutes for rebuttal. Can I make that seven? <laughs> Can I take seven for rebuttal?" Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and so it looked promising. Uh, the third judge didn't ask any questions at all. So it was hard to get a read on what he thought. But two of three judges is obviously all you need for, um, you know. Yeah. And you said that they didn't ask any questions of, of one of the uh, plaintiff's attorneys, uh, or I, I guess I should say appellant's attorneys. Uh, but they asked some of the of the second yeah. appellant's attorney? or. So they asked uh, a pr- just one procedural question, I believe it could have been two, but um, it's it's a little bit complicated, but that case had been stayed, actually. The judge said, wait, we're going to wait and see what happens in the Ninth Circuit. And so they challenged the stay. Oh, and so the court said, well, if, if the McDonald plaintiffs win, <laughs> which is also a little bit of a giveaway, right. but that's how they yeah, were leaning, right. what does that mean for your case? So that was the only question asked of the plaintiffs, which is a really good sign. That is a good sign. Uh, and then they hammered the... The, the attorney general's office yeah hammered yeah. the attorney general's office and they um they saw lots of problems with the law along the lines of um what the judge in our case found which well our judge um found solely on due process not first yeah. amendment but okay. yeah. so uh so where does it stand now so we're just waiting for the decision from the ninth circuit which i hear can take a very long time um, and NCLA actually wrote an amicus brief in that case, uh, and that was our way of uh, sort of ensuring our clients' rights were protected. Because if 
if this case were to come out the wrong way, it would have bad implications for our clients since it's an appellate court. So it would negatively, you know, impact the <laughs> the trial judges. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. it would be uh, it would be binding precedent at that point, right? So yeah. uh, so that would be a problem. Um, and and I think. Uh, I mean, putting an amicus brief in makes sense. If you won below, then obviously your arguments were spectacular, and uh, <laughs> and you wanted to get those arguments in front of, of the Ninth Circuit uh, as well. What, yeah. Was was there any? I don't know if this question makes sense, Jeannie, but were there any questions that either you expected to come up that that didn't, or sort of topics that the court just didn't explore that you thought it would have? I was surprised they didn't ask anything of the plaintiffs. Yeah. Um, I mean. There, uh, while I think it's a pretty clear First Amendment and due process, uh, the law is, you know, presents serious due process and First Amendment problems. I don't. I think there are questions worth asking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was it was interesting to me that they didn't ask anything, and it may have been an indication they wanted to send a signal, in fact, uh, to the Attorney General that they didn't like this law. Um, and I don't know if the attorney general would apply for cert in the Supreme Court. That's an open question. They might. Oh, that's they a good. Might, they yeah. might give up. <laughs> yeah, that's a that is a good question. I mean, they're not they're not a, they're not obligated to take every case all the way up to the to the U.S. Supreme Court. I assume, um, but uh, but I think it makes. I mean, I understand why they're trying to defend the 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 law in the Ninth Circuit, but I think it's a law that's hard to defend. Yeah. Did, did you get a sense whether the court was going to rule just on the due process part or just on the First Amendment part, or did they seem to be equally interested in, in sort of both sets of problems with with the law? They didn't uh, distinguish the two arguments all that much. So, I, I mean, there's a lot of overlap, right? The the arguments are kind of similar in terms of, well... The, and, and I was going to say, what are those? Because we, yeah. we haven't talked about the case in a while. <laughs> yeah, the uh, First Amendment argument are, argues that this is viewpoint discrimination. So that's the most insidious kind of First Amendment violation. The government can't punish people for expressing disfavored viewpoints. So you're allowed to say, you know, um, ivermectin is bad, but you're not allowed to say it's good. That would be a, a viewpoint discrimination. Right, exactly. And it was, well, the law sort of on its face might purport to be kind of neutral. It was the legislative history made clear that what they were seeking to punish was people who departed from, for instance, the CDC. Um, and, as, you know, masks and people who question whether everyone needs the vaccine were specific, specifically mentioned in the legislative history. So it was pretty clear that this was viewpoint discriminatory. And then the other challenge was a due process challenge, and it was uh, that the law was unconstitutionally vague. That basically says that it's really not clear what this law means. Um, and so doctors won't know whether what they're saying or their treatment uh, violates it. And so they won't say anything. Uh, so it, it has a chilling effect. But yeah. Yeah, either <laughs> yeah. way, whether it's chilling because of the First Amendment or chilling because of the vagueness under the Fifth Amendment, you're you're chilling doctors from having candid conversations with their patients. Right. Um, but, but both sort of raise similar questions about what does it mean uh, for there to be a scientific consensus. So that was one of the terms of the statute. I, uh, the language used to roll off <laughs> the tip of my <laughs> tongue, but after a few months, I've forgotten it. It's, right, right. Uh, doctors, it, it prohibits doctors from... Contemporary scientific consensus yeah, or something like that. false information contrary to the standard of care and against the scientific consensus. Uh, okay. So what our judge found was that that phrase just made no sense, which I completely agree with. Like standard of care is something doctors are familiar with, and they have to abide by anyway. 
But for medical malpractice reasons or what have you. Exactly. But scientific consensus has not been used typically for medical malpractice or in other statutes. Doctors aren't familiar with the term and it's appended to the standard of care without an and or an or. So it's not clear how the two relate to each other. Is it modifying it? Is it another element? Like it's uh, totally unclear. And you know, our contention is that it was designed to sort of confuse doctors. So they just toe the, the party line and don't say anything that could be controversial. Sure. Uh, so we have uh, just under 30 seconds left. Is there anything else that you wanted to make sure our audience knows about the case? Um, well, <laughs> s- s- stay, stay tuned, I guess. Yeah, we'll we'll stay, let you know when the decision comes out. Stay well, tuned. how about this? Is is Will anything happen in the Hogue case between now and when this decision comes out? Un- uh, it could. Uh, the judge stayed everything until January and the Ninth Circuit can take a while. Okay. So it could. <laughs> things could happen. We'll see. We'll keep you posted. <laughs>